You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. My fellow citizens, our Earth is in the middle of a crisis, plunging deeper into chaos. No, I feel your pain and your loss. We can't stand idly by and let this happen. We must rise up and... (coughs) (coughs) Sorry. Damn it. Well, this is awkward. Hi, my name is Josh Shell, and I am the host of the Let's Start a Cult podcast, where each episode, myself and some guests take a look at different cults from around the world, for educational purposes only, and definitely not to start our own cult. Join me every other week as we break down dangerous religious cults, political extremist groups, and every other kind of cult in between. Should I apologize for the terrible southern accent? No? Okay. Subscribe and listen to Let's Start a Cult anywhere you listen to podcasts. Autumn's Oddities is a strange and unusual podcast made by the strange and unusual me, Autumn Gruby. Each week, I'll be taking you through some of the creepiest cases true crime has to offer. It won't only be true crime. I'll also be covering cryptids, haunted places, haunted things, and the true stories that inspired horror movies. Listen every Monday and Friday for new episodes. And remember, if it's creepy and weird, you'll find it here. On February 2nd, 1999, at the address of 11553 Wellington Street, a rural street about 7 kilometers north of St. Thomas, Ontario, emergency vehicles were called as there was a fire in a farmhouse. When they arrived at the address, they found a fire that was local to the living room of the house, and they tragically found a man and a woman inside the building, and they were both deceased. This, however, was not quite as it seemed, and the police would unravel a set of circumstances that still today, over 23 years later, have not been explained, solved, or closed. Welcome to Gone But Never Forgotten, The Deaths of Roger Smith and Wendy Haveron. And welcome back. And welcome to our first attempt at doing shows weekly. 
It's certainly a lot more work, but a lot of you are telling us that you cannot get enough of our content, and we really want to take this next step forward. Yes, we are literally doubling research, recording, doubling the editing, doubling everything. That means that I need to make sure that I don't get writer's block anymore. Well, and more than ever, if you have a case that you would like us to cover, please let us know. We will be looking at so many more cases now, and we always love a nudge in the right direction. As you know if you're listening, we do mostly cover Canadian true crime, but we are also overdue for a gone traveling episode or two here shortly as well. So, if you have an interesting case that is international, let us know that too. We cannot promise a timeline on when we will get episodes out, but we will always look into them to see if we have enough to work with for an entire episode. Yes, and that doesn't mean that the story needs to be out in the public eye in a big way. It just means that there needs to be enough information out there that makes it easy for us to talk and explain. Yeah, this week's episode will likely be one of our shorter ones, but it is interesting nonetheless. Yes, you mentioned another fire and interesting circumstances. What's up with that? Hang on, we'll get to that. But you certainly likely are on the right track. It wasn't too long ago that we covered the story of Jane and Catherine Johnson and their house fire as well. But before we get started, I want to mention a couple of things here. First, I want to tell the listeners a little bit about our intro to every episode and the Darkcast Network. We haven't actually really shared too much about our network, and we probably should. True enough. Well, starting officially on January 1st, we were welcomed into a really badass group of people and podcasts called the Darkcast Network. Darkcast Network has the main goal of getting indie podcasts like us noticed. It was started by CJ from Beyond the Rainbow, True Crimes of the LGBT, and Paige from Reverie True Crime, and really and truly has a whole bunch of amazing podcasts that everyone should check out. A lot of the ads that you'll hear on GBNF are going to be for podcasts that are from the Darkcast Network and from other networks that we've partnered up with for ad shares. Please, when you hear those, if it catches your attention, go check them out and show them all of the love and attention that you show us. Just make sure that you come back. Yes, please don't forget about us. Speaking of not forgetting about us, we just wanted to remind you that there are so many ways that you can interact with us on social media and help out the podcast as well. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And you can support us by joining us on Patreon, sending donations on PayPal, or buying some merch. I just received my GBNF hoodie, and I'm super excited about it. By the time we post this episode, I'm sure that Julie will have it all over social media. You can find anything that you want regarding the podcast over on our link tree, which is linked on all social media accounts and websites. Please, help us to keep growing. Don't forget to follow, rate, share, and all of that if you love our show. Well, I think it's about time that we get this show started, don't you? Let's go! Very early in the morning on February 2nd, 1999, a 911 call was made and police fire, and ambulance were called out to 11 553 Wellington Street 
just north of St. Thomas, Ontario. What they found when they arrived was a house fire. The morning was crisp and there was a dense fog as the firefighters fought to put the fire in the home out. Thankfully, or so it would seem, the fire seemed to be local to just one area of the house. Unfortunately, though, nobody had emerged from the home when the fire started, and when firefighters were able to get into the house, what they found was sad. They found two bodies burnt beyond recognition in the living room of the house where the fire had taken place. The two people inside were Roger Smith and his common-law wife, Wendy Havran. Their family stood helplessly on the side of Wellington Road watching on as the firefighters worked to put out that fire. The family was well-known in the area, and Roger was even a prize-winning dairy farmer. The highlight of every year for this couple was the Royal Winter Fair, which is the largest combined indoor agricultural fair and international equestrian competition in the world. The event combines sporting events, livestock shows, trade shows, family attractions, and top-ranked international equestrian competition. It was a hopping place, and anyone that ever won awards there was very well-renowned. And Roger and Wendy and their dairy cow herd were indeed well-respected, well-loved, and well-known. Nearly 300,000 people attend the Royal Winter Fair every year. Wendy worked with Roger at the farm, but she was also rather small and frail because she had suffered from chronic health problems with her esophagus since she was a teenager. At the time of her death, Wendy only weighed 90 pounds. This is so sad, and I know that it's about to get worse. They seemed like a lovely couple who worked hard and persevered for the most part. Yes, uh, there are reports that Roger was serving time on weekends at the Elgin Middlesex Detention Center for charges on sexual interference. He had been given a 90-day sentence in the December before the fire for sexual interference with someone under the age of 14. This situation was obviously never tied to the case from what we can see while researching, but I did feel like it was worth mentioning. As sad as it was, it seemed to be pretty clear what had happened in that farmhouse to everyone on the scene. There was a localized fire in the living room where Wendy and Roger had been, and that had been the cause of death. Both of the bodies were burnt very badly, and that was clearly the cause of death. Or... So everyone thought. A few days later, reports came back from the autopsy, and instead of seeing what everyone expected, there was a lot more going on than met the eye a few days earlier on Groundhog Day 1999. Two pieces of information would leave this case open and start an entirely new investigation. Wendy and Roger had not been killed by the fire. Nope. The cause of death for both was blunt force trauma, although those details would trickle out slowly over time. The immediate response was, of course, to return to the home and the area surrounding the home to start gathering evidence. The home, fields, and all areas nearby were searched, and police did say that they were able to gather a lot of evidence in spite of the fire. Now that they knew that they were dealing with much more than a house fire, they realized that the fire itself had likely been set by whomever had killed Roger and Wendy to try and cover up any evidence and conceal the crime. That plan had failed. This plan seems like it fails a whole bunch, doesn't it? 
I mean, we haven't done too, too many episodes yet, and we've come across two cases where someone killed someone and tried to cover it up and failed. But on the flip side of that, who knows how many times that works, right? Well, yeah, I guess that's certainly a sinister thought when you put it that way. Within about a week, reports on all the evidence came in and police reported that they had identified the weapon that was used to kill Wendy and Roger. Results that came back from the Center of Forensic Sciences confirmed that one of the items that police sent their way was indeed the weapon that had been used in the beatings of Roger and Wendy that had taken place before the fire was set. The weapon was not immediately released to the public. Most of us are aware that police do usually keep certain details private so that they have a way to verify that someone is telling the truth if they turn themselves in and say that they committed the crime. I still always find it weird that people will try to confess to crimes that they didn't even commit. It happens a lot. Uh, It happens with people in jail when someone wants a little more media fame. Um, Sadly, some people only know how to live inside of jail, so they will falsely confess just to get themselves back there. There's also the coercion factor many times. Police will tell a suspect that the evidence is so strong that they know they will get an easy conviction. The police say that because they want a conviction, but the suspect may believe that if the evidence is so strong, they should make a plea deal for less punishment. There are certainly many reasons that it is done, but I agree with you. It's strange for sure. Unfortunately, even though the police had uncovered that Roger and Wendy were beaten to death before the house was set on fire, and they also knew the weapon that was used in the assault, they seemingly weren't getting any closer to the who and the why. There was one suspect early on in the case. It seems that the police had a good feeling about who was behind the murders, And around this time, without giving any direct details to the family, they had said that they felt like they were close to solving the case. Police did seize a vehicle and some other items from a home in St. Thomas less than a week after the fire and murders, and it was believed that the person of interest was a man who helped out at the farm and looked after the cattle while Roger was serving his time over the weekends. A name was never officially released here, so we won't name any names. All I will say is that it would seem that if police believed that they were on the right track, but then didn't make any arrests, you can go in one of two ways, and most people discussing the case do. Either one, the man was innocent, or the evidence didn't line up the way it needed to, or two, many people think that police knew more but didn't press on. I tend to want to believe that our boys in blue are not tainted to this extent and that the evidence just simply did not line up. So, again, we come back to the who and the why. And unfortunately, to this day, we don't know the answer to either question. About a year after the fact, seemingly because holding the murder weapon as an unknown hadn't helped, the police released information on the murder weapon to the public. The weapon that had been used to beat Roger and Wendy to death was a silver baseball bat that had been stained red. The name Power Flight was on the bat. I found this to be a very interesting point. Why is that? Well, I mean, generally you don't use a baseball bat by yourself, right? 
you're often hitting balls and you're often not chasing them down by yourself so other people are around. Okay. So as someone who played a lot of baseball competitively and recreationally growing up, I still remember certain things that people did to alter their bats. So if this was a baseball bat that was ever used for the purpose of playing baseball, someone might actually still remember their friend's bat that they had altered and changed the color of. Just, it seems like a piece of information that could be useful. Unless they bought the bat simply for the crime. Well, I guess you punched a hole in my theory, didn't you? You never know though, right? So good on you for bringing that up. Now, I feel like you're just trying to make me feel better about crushing something that had me super excited as a key for this case, but I'm going to run with it. Do you remember a silver baseball bat that was stained red? Make a quick email or call to police. It's that simple. The sad thing with this case is that that call or tip has never come. This year would have been 23 years since Roger Smith and Wendy Havron were murdered. Their farmhouse is long gone while the dairy barn and milking parlor are now faded and not used as they once were. The home replaced by two large advertising signs. But the family still comes to commemorate the anniversary and they still believe that even though the property has moved on, they have not. They know that somewhere out there, someone knows what happened. The OPP have stated many times that they do not have cold cases, and this one remains open and seeking that tip that can change everything in an instant. There's also a $50,000 reward for information that leads to them solving this crime. That has been provided by the government of Ontario. If you have any information on this case, please call the OPP at one 310 or call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-TIPS. That's 1-800-222-8477. So, what do you think about this one, Julie? What do you think about this whole business of trying to use a fire to cover up a grisly murder? Well, I have a couple theories here. So my first theory is, even though you said that everything with the sexual interference doesn't have to do with this, Maybe it does. Maybe someone was mad and did something, you know, like payback. Or maybe the other dairy farmer was jealous of his cattle and their award-winning herd. You know, I don't know. But I think one of those two things could possibly be. Yeah, there's a lot of things on the periphery here. Um, I mean, obviously, like, when I read that he, you know, had been basically, he was found guilty of sexual interference with a minor, you know, like if somebody touched my kid, I might want to, you know, beat their asses a little bit too. Yeah. That's why I think it could be that, you know, it just, there's nothing linking the two. And also like they were, they apparently they were very like good people or whatever. So, you know, I don't know. I really don't know. But the interesting thing that doesn't connect the dots there for me is sure. Okay. He was found guilty of this crime. And he was serving his time on weekends. But whose house did the police go to? And who did they seemingly think was their suspect? Mm. It was the guy that was working at the farm 
while Roger was serving time. Yeah. There's no way that was like the father of the minor. You're not you're no. not going to help out at a farm where a guy interfered sexually with your child. No. So for sure. there's there's some weird stuff there. Like I couldn't reconcile everything. It was like, okay, so like a hundred percent you read that, you think, yeah, someone he touched someone's kid or did something with someone's kid and that person would definitely probably be on some level thinking about retribution. Yeah. But the person that seemed to be the suspect was not the same person, I don't think. Like, I don't think there's any way those two people could have been the same. No, of course not. But that's why I would actually love to have more information on that person that was helping on the farm when he was serving his time on the weekends. Like, I think it'd be really interesting to know what their relationship was. You know, it must have been a little bit more than just a helper, you know, maybe they were friends or something. I don't know. I just feel like there's so many avenues and can go with like maybe something happened or he wanted to help out more. And, you know, Roger was like, no, you can't do that. I don't know. My mind is going everywhere because there's so many things that could happen that we don't even know. There's not enough information here on the relationship with that person. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of like, I guess I'll call them loose ends. And like, I would assume that obviously, you know, if we're sitting here as, you know, Jane and John Doe who do a podcast talking about, oh, this seems like it could be something I'm sure the police have looked. Um, The other thing that I did want to mention, though, is just like this, the fact that Wendy was involved in this assault and this fire and these murders, it's, it's, you know... This is a woman who was frail, she weighed 90 pounds, and she was beaten to death with a baseball bat. It really makes you think like there was something personal here because there really was probably not any reason for Wendy to be attacked. That you know of. That I know of, that's true. And it's definitely, you know, I want to go back to this whole fire thing too. I mean, let's just burn the house down and hopefully it'll burn all the evidence and, you know, people will just think it's a fire. It doesn't work anymore. Like, I I would think, like, in most cases, that's not going to work anymore. Because, yeah, sure, here they they convinced the first responders. They found these two blackened bodies that were burnt beyond recognition. And, you know, obviously you think, okay, they died in the fire. But... With, you know, autopsies and science and technology we have today, eventually, like in this case, which took place a long time ago compared to now in 2022, you know, they found out that it wasn't fire. It was blunt force trauma that caused their death. Like, Mm -hmm. you're not, you're really going to have to do some damage with a fire if you're going to cover up what you did. Well, and I think in cases where that could work, it would be more like the fire wasn't discovered right after it was set. Like, yep. it would have to be long after, because even, like, the bones, you can you can tell from bones what was fractured or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Like, just because everything else is burnt doesn't mean they can't tell what happened to the bones. So, anyways, we're not going to get into that. But I just think it's pretty crazy that even though they were burnt beyond recognition, they still could figure out what happened to them. Mm-hmm. So, like, that is pretty amazing. Yep, I agree. And I think that we will wrap this episode with a bow right here. Thank you all so much for listening, and we're going to try our best to continue to make this thing weekly and meet your demands. So send me and Julie all of your good vibes. Until next week, be a good person and not an asshat. And thank you again for all your support, and thank you for spending your time with us here on Gone But Never Forgotten.